Hello everyone and welcome to this archive from Restorative Justice on the Rise, sponsored by the Peace Alliance. Restorative Justice on the Rise is an ongoing series featuring pioneers in the field of restorative justice and social healing. We'd love to see you in the future and for more information about the schedule and to access all free archives, please go to dopeace.us and click on Restorative Justice and the drop-down menu for each subsequent month's scheduling and archives. This particular archive is from Thursday, January 31st, 2013, and we had an incredible session with Pat McCabe, who also is known as Woman Stands Shining, in honoring indigenous perspectives in restorative justice. Thanks for listening in and see you in the future on Restorative Justice on the Rise. Welcome everyone to this edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is an ongoing telecouncil series co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance. It's a weekly series that's free of charge, and we welcome your donations and your support, and more than that, your participation in this virtual council. My name is Molly Rowan Leach, and I am your host this evening. It's an honor to be here with you all. And if it's your first time here tonight, just a few words about the format of our council space here. We, throughout the evening, we have an hour together, and throughout this evening we'll be in conversation with our very special guest, whom I'll introduce here in just a moment. And more importantly, to denote tonight and throughout this month and beyond the honoring and importance of our realization of the historical perspectives and practices of our indigenous just giving thanks to the wisdom that is global and as well as local to this demographic area and region we call North America, and thanking the people who have practiced ways in which we can learn and hopefully integrate as we go through such a powerful time of transformation in what we call the Western justice system in this culture of ours called the United States of America. So. We hope that this uh, council space provides conversation, education, connection, and inspiration, and certainly encourage you and welcome you to go over to our website at dopeace.us, that's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S, to find out more. You click on the Restorative Justice tab. There's a sub-menu there that houses archives from the two seasons that we've been doing this. You can also choose to make a donation at the Peace Alliance's website. That's thepeacealliance.org. And you can denote in a special line uh, of your donation towards this series if you wish. We appreciate your support and your participation in every way. So tonight we'll be conversing and we'd also at some point possibly be willing to open up the lines um, to questions and comments. We'll, we'll kind of guide the way tonight with our special guests and see what evolves in this conversation focused on indigenous perspectives in restorative justice. So without further ado, I also would like to thank my very special co-host tonight. This is the first time that I've been um, honored to co-host a telecouncil 
And tonight's co-host with me is Joyce Anastasia. She is an incredible videographer, and she's also done a lot of videography work around indigenous perspectives and cultures. So just very pleased to have Joyce here with us tonight, co-hosting the conversation with all of us. So tonight, uh, our, our very special guest, Pat McCabe, also known as Woman Stand Shining, a Diné tribal member, Lakota pipe carrier, is an artist, a writer, ceremonial leader, and she's also an international speaker and voice for global peace. She creates paintings that are created as tools for individual earth and global healing. She's also appeared in two documentary films, Seeding Change and also Journeying to Turtle Island. She's presented at the International Healing Conference in Bali and also has been an active participant in the Seed Dialogues, Language of Spirit Conference Dialogues, that is, that occur yearly in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So without further ado, and with, with just great honor and pleasure, I will welcome you to the circle tonight, Pat, Woman Stand Shining. Welcome. Oh, good evening, and thank you very much for welcoming me to this uh, special special um, council. Hmm. Well, I thought maybe perhaps tonight we might start with a story of some sort that you might feel comfortable sharing, either from your your journey up till now or one that's just simply present with you as a metaphor uh of of what justice means to you of of how justice might have been practiced what you've witnessed in your life anything that comes to you in this moment that you might share with us from your particular tradition and your particular journey hmm. um first i would like to introduce myself i guess in a in a formal way, so Shaeya Tachini Nashli Aro Ashi Bashishin Maitishkajni Dashinali Plaschi Dashiche Gwat Awani Nashli. Um so I wanted to uh say that my mother named me Patricia McCabe. Um but I was also given the name Wiyakpa Najimi which means woman stand shining. And uh, I like to um, speak those words. Um, it's the correct way um, that my people, the Diné people, have of beginning a conversation and introducing ourselves because um, it, it uh, tells you who, who my clan is. I get my clan from my mother. And... Um, and then I also tell you who my father's clan is, and I tell you who my father's father's clan is, and I tell you who my mother's father's clan is. And I have a joke. I say that's my that's my spiritual GPS uh, coordinates <laughs> <laughs> on the planet. And um, those clans are associated with a very specific place on the earth. Um, and so they literally do orient me in space but they also um, speak of um, my relationship to others, uh, others of my people. Um, but they also speak, uh, can speak of certain characteristics that 
might be expected to exhibit or hold. And um, so I think um, as far as the story goes, I can say that uh, my family history is deeply rooted um, in the story of transformation that has come upon this Holy Mother Earth. Um, and this story um, of creation, which we, all of us together, are telling right now, has gone through many transformations. But I can speak from uh, beginning a few generations ago. My grandparents um, on both sides of the family were taken into the um, Dutch Christian Reform Mission Schools. And so that was how um, an idea, a plan that was had taken hold of... Uh, the governing body of this nation um, came to play out within my very personal family and my personal history. So they were taken into these mission schools, and, and at that time um, they were both, uh, all, all my grandparents were fluent speakers of our language, the Nepisad. And uh, my grandmother actually talked to me. She remembers the first time she ever saw a white person and um, I guess I could talk about my maternal grandmother. She, um, in her family, when they when they came for the children to take them to the schools, um, her her siblings didn't go. She was the only one in her family who went. So there was a split in the family right there. But my grandmother went to the mission schools, and she. Um, uh, really came to enjoy many aspects of that school. You know, I mean, when I talk to and hear stories from other people who attended those schools at that time, there are definitely some horror stories <laughs> there. But I never heard that from my grandmother. My grandmother um, really, really valued a lot of what she was taught at this school. Um, but she also had to release uh, a great part of what I would call her identity up until that time. You know, she had to release her language. She had to release her spiritual understanding, and it was replaced with um, the Dutch Christian Reform view of how this life works. She was an incredible horsewoman, incredible horsewoman, and... Uh, it was her job to teach the missionaries who would come out from Grand Rapids, Michigan. She would teach the medical staff how to ride horseback. And she was always surprised that that they didn't even know how to ride, she, she would say. <laughs> and um, But she would teach them to ride. And so she went on house calls all over the reservation um, with these medical people. And she also um, became the first graduate 
of this nursing program that this missionary school had begun. She was the first Diné graduate of that program. So she learned this skill for Western medicine. And um, her daughter was also a nurse, and, and then this was my aunt, and then her daughter also became a nurse. And so I guess I bring that back to our clan lineage because our clan is one of the older clans and it's a healing clan. And so I believe that it ended up coming through and playing out through through that um, profession. So it still found its way. Um, but when my grandmother's... Uh, children came along, she had four kids, she felt compelled to put them herself into the missionary school. In other words, they weren't they weren't forcibly taken there, but uh but she but she placed them there and and my understanding was because one, she had fully adopted uh the Christian perspective of that of that being a necessity of that doctrine. But also um I understand that uh um, the depression was going on at that time. And so it was also a means of, because our, the Diné people's economic system had been thoroughly disrupted at that time. We had already been taken down to the concentration camp in the southern part of the state of New Mexico. Um, and our lives had been deeply um, disrupted in our ways of being and and, and subsisting and and all had been really deeply changed. So by the time, uh, right around that time, the Great Depression was was coming around, and uh, it was a very difficult time for Diné people to be able to take care of their children. So she um, sent them to the schools as well. So all this is to say that they, you know, my parents, um, my father spoke Diné pretty well. He understood pretty well. My mother... Uh, could understand somewhat, but she didn't speak the language. So all this is to say that by the time I came around on this earth, uh, there wasn't the people closest to me were were not able to teach me um, about who who I who I am, who I was as a Diné woman, and their focus was to try to train me as best that they possibly could to be able to survive and, in fact, compete in this Mm. world. So um, their focus, the way that they felt that, that I would be able to do that would be through the educational system. And so they really uh, made a huge effort to place me into... Um, the schooling system. And so I ended up actually, um, my father attended the Stanford University, and so I ended up living on the Stanford University campus for uh, about five years. So when I was like from nine to 13 or so, I I lived on the Stanford University campus, which was just a phenomenal place, (laughs) Um, quite different from the way that my parents and my grandparents had been raised. I was raised in a global community. On one side of me, my neighbor was Japanese and from Japan, and on the other side, my neighbors were from Israel. 
in this uh, little married student housing community. And my schoolmates were from all over the world. And so this was this was how I came uh, into this life. And um, but I want to say that uh, I also uh, was sent to an East Coast boarding school. I was sent to the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, which was also uh, a very different kind of ex experience <laughs> than what my parents and grandparents had um, in, the, in their boarding school experience. Although I do remember when, when my parents first talked about sending me to a boarding school, I kept thinking about the boarding schools they had been sent to, you know, on the reservation, and I kept thinking, wow, now why would they... Why would they be thinking about doing that for me or with me? Mm. And of course, I ended up being in a, an entirely different situation. But I guess um, I'm bringing this back around to my telling you who I am on my clans because uh, throughout all this time, I had no ability to describe that to you. I had no ability to sense um, who I was. Uh, in 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 term in those terms, you know, and so it's been a very long circle coming back around to to finding that that route for me. Um, mm. But eventually, I did come back to New Mexico, and I moved uh, uh, up to Taos, New Mexico, and in this very unique community. Um, also kind of a global crossroads, um, I ended up meeting people from the Lakota tradition at a very critical and very uh, kind of desperate time of my life, actually. And so I was taken into that spiritual path. And through that spiritual path, I was um, brought back to my own my own people, <laughs> And uh, so as I began to practice the Lakota tradition, um, maybe some people know this, maybe some people don't, but there was a vision that came to one of the elders in the Lakota tradition. And in that vision, this elder saw that people from all the different colors would be coming to pray with the pipe and with the Lakota tradition. And this man honored that vision that he had and so it was kind of from that point that he began to enlist the help of people from uh, all different uh, bloodlines to come and support these ceremonies in the Lakota tradition not everybody agrees with this but nevertheless it did occur that way and so there are many people all around the world at this point who do practice the Lakota tradition and so coming to Taos and meeting people who took me into that tradition um, at a very difficult time in my life, none of them were Native people. <laughs> and so somehow I had traveled this whole road all the way around and ended up beginning to learn about some way of connecting through an ancient practice, which ended up being the Lakota tradition. Um, that was offered to me by people who were not Native, but who had been following and who were under the tutelage of Native elders. And so 
from there, um, I was told that I should look to the four mountains that I was born to. I was told this through the Lakota tradition. And that I should see who I was born to and that there was a reason that I was born to the Diné people. And that I should go home and find out about this because my people had a very special understanding of beauty. And so uh, I was told to go and, and find this out. And then I was told that maybe one day I would come back into the Lakota tradition and I would bring that teaching back into the Lakota tradition. So that's kind of a long story, but I want to say that for me, it is a story of a certain kind of restorative justice. And to me, it's a story that was laid out in front of me personally in which I was given the ability to look at all the many stories that are taking place on this Mother Earth at this time from all different perspectives. And that has served me very deeply in my work and my walk for peace and harmony between all people because I've been helped um, and guided from many different directions. And um, so I guess maybe I will start with that story. Uh, there's There's just so much, if I might just say, in that story, as you're saying, to... Uh, embody its own form and um, emanation of what we might call restorative justice, even in the sense of of the possibility that coming home to oneself and one's past and um, ancestry and the practices that come with that and, and on the stories and making sense of that and then being able to bring that forward is is such a deep sense of, of reconciliation and and peace in, in so many ways. And one of the things in, in just really appreciating who you are in your fullness and, and just sitting with some of the videos that I've watched interview, uh, one in particular that actually Joyce Anastasia, my co-host tonight, did with you at the SEED conference a few years ago, you speak to... Um, a bit to the looking back in order to, to move ahead. And I'm wondering if if that meaning here intersects with, with justice and, and also the acknowledgement. Do, do we need acknowledgement and understanding of what has come forward or come, come um, you know, from behind in order to move forward? Hmm, I think um, maybe I can speak to that second question first. Uh, I think, uh, I like how in Spanish they say, si, pero no. (laughs) Um, I think it is really critical to look back um, in the sense of well, this is part of the message that I carry as I travel to different places. I always say, if sustainability is the highest and most sought-after technology on the planet, who should we be talking to? 
and I say we should be talking to those people who know how to live in one place over an extended period of time in some form of balance and harmony. And so we tend to call these people indigenous people. So we, we, the global community, at this time could really use that sense of calling upon these indigenous peoples who have a very, very high science of sustainability. And that has, uh, that, that understanding, that teaching, and that living um, extends back through time. So there is this lineage that has traveled forward. Now, many cultures all around the world, of course, have been deeply, deeply affected and, and disrupted. Um, that was one really profound thing that I never realized until I think the first time it really sunk in was when I did go to the uh, gathering in Bali. And I began to tell some of that story that I just told to the Balinese women, and they would fall in my arms crying. And they would say, that, that's our story. That's our story. We're, we're really trying to you know, recover our language. We're trying to remember our ways because the church came and the schools came, and, and, um, and it's very difficult, and the elders get frustrated with us. And, you know, <laughs> so that was when it really hit me that this, what we call colonialism, um, kind of hit the whole planet almost at the same time. And all these different peoples all over the world were so drastically affected. And that knowledge, that science that had been carried for so long began to be in a precarious position about whether or not we, we would be able to continue forward carrying the, that knowledge and those practices and that way of life um, that was precarious. And so uh, so I think, you know, all these indigenous peoples, my own people included, um, we have this deep desire to to retrieve those of us who were, who were indoctrinated deeply and for extended periods of time, you know, into this Western culture, this colonial um, perspective and way of, of going about things. We have a deep desire to retrieve. Um, so in that sense, the going back makes sense. But there's a difficulty in that retrieval that I've noticed and that is when we get really bent on retrieving information, you know, so we might be sitting around and saying, okay, well, here we're going to conduct this ceremony, for instance. And someone will say, this is how I was taught to do it. And someone else would say, well, wait a minute. No, my grandparents told me this is how you do it. And uh, and then a third person might, you know, might come up and say, well, wait, no, this is how we were taught to do it. <laughs> and so um, what I see as the difficulty with this retrieval is because we are trying, to, because, because we are feeling it oftentimes as a retrieval, we want to have the correct retrieval. 
the correct information. And so um, the thing is, is that, you know, when, you, when, we, when I used to talk to the very old elders who are leaving us, they're, they're leaving us. <laughs> they never spoke in those terms of absolutes. Mm. They might say, this is a good way to go about it. But that would be about as strong as they might speak about it, you know. They didn't because they didn't feel like it was their way. There was, these things were living things, and they were constantly being influenced and informed by this earth herself, and by spirit, and by the spirit helper. So it was a constantly ongoing, in motion kind of um, life, which is part of what made it so beautiful. But when we fell, when we fall into this place of going back in terms of retrieval, we tend to start falling into uh, maybe a dogma. It's when it becomes stationary mm-hmm. that there's a little bit of a danger in that retrieval. So um, I would say that. Uh, the retrieval to understand what we know about sustainability, which I would say restorative justice is is a part of that sustainability. Um, if we can keep that um, motion uh, alive in that retrieval, then then that's when the going back becomes very useful. When the going back and retrieving becomes uh, stationary or static, um, that's when things can 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 fall into uh, that dogmatic place. In which case, um, it's less useful. I guess that's what came up for me when you were talking about the the going back. Mhm. One of the things, Pat, in in this um, particular series this month. Uh, a common thread that that has really been emergent and present all throughout seems to be the understanding, of course, that we're here in this moment in this Western culture with a punitive system. It's become a prison industrial complex. Um, There's money being made by a few hands. Um, There's uh, reciprocation of of punishment and... and, um, uh, self, you know, it, it's just a, a, a reciprocal that is occurring here in 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 so many different ways, including um, being what many might call a new Jim Crow, and really targeting um, communities um, in various ways, including um, those with mental health issues. Over 25% of prisoners have mental health um, serious mental health issues. And so, you know, I think a lot of us here tonight, of course, know that we're really in trouble. Um, And yet at this very moment, it also appears that there's this huge uprising and people are on the ground, I think, really craving and hungering for the wisdom that, you know, your, your lineage has carried through you and your ancestors and other indigenous. And so I guess what I'm wondering is if you might speak to how how might we in this Western system better honor, first of all, the ways that have been practiced for ancient times in many cases, 
that might inform a better, more humane, more connective way of of balancing when things come out of balance. Mm. Well, um, I think that one place, as you posed that question, part of the answer that came to me was uh, first, I talked about indigenous cultures uh, as being this, this holder of sustainability. And um, that that's a separation language. Um, and it's difficult, it's a difficult place to draw the line. Where do you draw the line? Uh, has been a big question for me. But, you know, I, I as I said, I think in the documentary that, that Joyce had done, um, I, for lack of a better way of doing it, I, I begin to refer to the currently tribal indigenous peoples. Um, and at the same time, so here's that paradox again. So I recognize that there that there are those people who are in that uh, category and in that um, in that fight for their for their own cultures at, at this time and to preserve their languages and their ways. But at the same time, I feel like it's really important for us to recognize that we are also um, not separated. So if each person can begin to uh, have that sense about themselves as belonging to this earth, that this earth is, uh, is providing everything that every single one of us needs to take care of everything that we love. Um, in that sense, we are we are all we're all the children. So, I say that in terms of you know rather than having this separation about well there were these people who had these ways intact and and what can they what can they tell us there is that part of it yes, but there's also a part of it of, of recognizing that all of that wisdom all of that understanding all of that way came directly out of the earth. I believe even the languages themselves came directly from the place on earth where these people who speak those languages live. So all of that information is coming straight up out of the earth. And in that sense, there is an accessibility uh, uh, for every one of us to come to that understanding. So I think that would be one place that I would start to say um, that opening for people to just open to that idea that uh that that wisdom is available mm. I'm thinking right now also of my che my my clan grandfather in Shiprock right after the the terrible tragedy um in Connecticut of the, the young people whose lives ended so early. Um, he he sent out this word and he said, every single one of those children and you know teachers and, and all who were whose lives were taken, they are all my children. They're all my children. They're all all of our children. And he said, and the one who did the shooting, he is my child also, and he is all of our 
all of them. Mm. He's the child of all of them. And so I was thinking thinking about that and I was thinking about the times that I've had uh, to sit in the Hogan with him. Hogan is the traditional home of my people. And it's a place of ceremony. Um, and I think about all the times that I've gone in there and this incredible, uh, you know, my, my clan grandfather uh, is a facilitator in that place. But at the same time, it's it's a universal house. And it's actually a womb. He, he says, you know, it's, it's the belly of a pregnant mother when she's laying on the earth. That's the Hogan. And so there is a law beyond any human being that takes place in that Hogan. And so anything, anything at all can be brought back into that space. And it's not for any human being in there to judge, um, to condemn. Uh, it's for every single person in that Hogan to remember where they are, remember who they are in relation to that universal mother, to being that child, to being a child of the fire that's burning in the center. Um, and from that place, you know, we, we don't have a we don't have a place to condemn. We only have a place to hold space of beauty and healing and harmony to the very best of our ability for that one who's come in there to receive help. So even even someone who has committed murder or any other thing that we might think of, um, they come back in as that child, as a very holy and precious child that each one of us is, to come and sit and to ask for that help from their community and all of us mm-hmm. together sort of put the pieces back together to help that person and to help each other remember who we are and how we're all related. Mm. Similarly, in the in all of the ceremonies, um, that's what I love about these communities is, you know, it's not that, that human human stuff doesn't show up <laughs> in these communities. It most certainly does. But what I love about it is, you know, if you stick around long enough, and this, this is also one of those elements of sustainability and of justice, I think, is if you stick around long enough, all the squabbles and all the differences, they end up um, having to fall by the wayside at some point or another because you're going to end up back in ceremony with those same people and you're going to be praying with all of your heart and soul together for the life of a child or the life of an elder or for someone that everybody loves, you know. Mm. So all those things fall by the wayside. Mm. Thank you so much for what you're sharing this evening. It's it's really beyond words at some level here tonight and I I just um I just would like to open it up to Joyce 
if I might, and also would love to hear if you would be willing to share um, about the wiping of the tears work that yeah. you're doing and really the the amazing bridge that you are um, and talk a bit about that. And I'm going to open up your mic, Joyce, so that you can chime in here and converse. Yes, in fact, Molly, uh, you were reading my mind, as you often do, of uh, my, my heart was, was pulsing with all the things you were saying, uh, Woman Stand Shining, this notion of wiping of the tears, which you and I spoke of uh, actually many years ago. And if you could just speak to how you came to that and what does it, mean to you and what it might mean to what it might mean to others globally um, well again I want to say that I would imagine uh, so I, I certainly am not the inventor of the wiping of the tears <laughs> but uh, I would imagine that most cultures all around the world um, have some method of going about this but my understanding and my experience of the wiping of the tears ceremony in the Lakota tradition is done for uh, a family or someone who has lost uh, a loved one, you know, has had a loved one pass. And so at a certain point, um, certainly, you know, often on an anniversary, a year anniversary, um, a wiping of the tears ceremony is done for the family who's who's had their loved one pass on. And they it's the whole community comes together and they um kind of acknowledge that family and give that oppor- that family an opportunity to pray and then they kind of mark a time when they say, Okay, so you've had that opportunity to grieve, which is necessary, but we want to tell you that we understand where you are. We we want you to know that we also have lost loved ones and so we know how difficult that is but now we as a community are inviting you to come back to rejoin community but not only that but to come back to your own life we're going to help you we commit to help you come back to your own life and to fully recommit to the future and everything that it still holds for you and your family, even without this loved one. And so, you know, they mark that time by by literally wiping the tears with a feather and with water. Um, and they also uh, offer them a drink from that water, and then they offer all of the community a drink from the water. So that is uh, uh, a really amazing ceremony <laughs> to attend to to be on mm-hmm. to be on either side of it is is really profound but um again when i went to bali i had the the really deep honor of hearing um archbishop desmond tutu speaking and he was speaking about the truth and reconciliation act that was taking place in south africa and boy what a story that was to hear him speak about that and i began to think um, to myself, wow, well, is, um, you know, what would that look like in the United States? 
<laughs> and at that time, George George Bush was president. George W. Bush was president, and I thought that was a little hard to picture how that might how that might work, you know. But I was thinking, you know, what would it what would it really take to have that process in the United States? And I thought, well, who could we call? And if we couldn't call upon the president to to stand in that place, um, then who would we call? And I started going through all these ideas of maybe retired generals or, you know, all these crazy things were going through my mind. But what it really did for me was it made me think, wow, um, we could we really need that process too. And uh and then I so then I did some research at one point um about what was going on in different places and you know, in First Nations in Canada they had been having some work um, through their old mission schools about truth and real, you know, similar to truth and reconciliation process with SDs and um, and also in Australia, I'd come to learn that they had National Sorry Day, <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know, I didn't really know how all that was playing out exactly, but it was interesting to me that these things were taking place, and I thought. Um, you know, what we really need is a very large wiping of the tears ceremony for indigenous peoples. And I thought, wow, you know, how how would that work to to have peoples wiping these tears and inviting us to come back? and inviting us to recommit to the future and to acknowledge what had taken place. You know, it seems so powerful. So I started having this idea about the global wiping of the tears ceremony. And I've been carrying this for for a while now. But here in my own community, um, we were losing um, a lot of young people. One... One summer, we had several young people commit suicide all in one month, and I believe it was three of them committed suicide in a very dramatic way, which is that we have a very, very high suspension bridge over uh, the Rio Grande Gorge here by where I live, and and they were jumping off of this bridge, and it was just horrifying and heartbreaking to our community to be losing our young people, so many young people all at one time. I said to myself, the young people are beaching themselves <laughs> because mm. of this, the way that we have made this life, you know, very difficult. And so <clears throat> I talked to my daughter, told her what was happening here. She was away in California at school. And these people were people she had gone to school with here in, in Taos, you know. And so she she had this idea that we needed to call on the whole community to come together in support of our young people and to let them know how precious they were to just have the whole community stop. That was her that was what she really wanted was for us to just stop. So she created um a four day celebration and she said this is a spiritual problem that's going to require a spiritual solution. So she openly made it a four-day prayer ceremony on behalf of young people. So she created a series of events. 
But one of the events, she came to me and she said, Mom, I know you've been talking about this global wiping of the tears, but I wonder if you would wipe the tears of our community. <laughs> mm. And so, mm. so we set it up. And, um, you know, kind of uncharacteristically, we advertised in the newspaper. You know, we're a pretty small community, so it wasn't like the New York Times or anything, but still it's kind of a uh, not a very conventional thing to advertise like a ceremony in the newspaper, but we did because we wanted people who really needed it and who were really needing closure or who were really suffering because of what was happening to the young people to have an opportunity to know that it was taking place and to come. So we really didn't know who was going to come. And I called upon um, a Lakota elder man who lived here, and I asked him if he would come to this ceremony. And he said that he would. So he came, he showed up that day, and um, and he said to me, I said, okay, well, what do you think, how do you think this should go, how should we lay this out? And, and he said, oh, I'm not coming here to, t- to run this ceremony. I'm coming here because because I need it, because I need you to wipe my tears for me. (laughs) I was like, wow, Mm. okay. So um, he said, but one thing he said, he said, well, do you have a singer? And I said, you know, I don't have a singer, but I know songs, memorial songs. I said, so, well, I'm going to sing those. And he said, okay. So... We didn't know who was going to come, and I was preparing the room, and, and then we opened the doors, and I don't know, I think we probably had about uh, 60 people come from the community. And many of them, some of them were the parents of this, of the young people who had taken their lives. So I was really, really moved at who Spirit sent for that ceremony. And What uh, an amazing... It's an amazing um, response. Like uh, it was like a call from from the earth with those young people's spirits now uh, re-nurturing the earth, and them calling out for this. And it was a response to that amazing call. And what a response! That is beautiful. Yes. It was really amazing. And this other Lakota elder showed up who happens to be a world-class singer. (laughs) (laughs) And so he sang for us that day. And together we we put that ceremony together and uh, and wiped the tears of our community. And it was pretty beautiful, but when when the ceremony was complete, we had a very slight rain, and we had a huge rainbow come out. Uh, I just would like to say, too, the sense of of what you're describing here is so powerful and so simple and seems to require a willingness to listen um, and to tap into what the call and response might be in our own communities and just to appreciate all of you out there I know in Seattle there are so many people that are responding to the murder of 
a sculptor um, in in this way, in calling a circle of sorts that bridges with the families of the people who lost their beloved son and brother and with the people involved in law enforcement and people who are what might be called mediators and facilitators. And this is happening here in Colorado with people calling restorative circles and um, in Florida. And it's just it's coming uh, up perhaps from that, that source that you're speaking to so beautifully um, in, in these times. And, and Joyce, I wonder if you, if you might have some further questions um, and also if we could, could talk a little bit more about the bridge, the bridge concept here that you're offering in your walk. Go ahead, Joyce. I do have... Yeah, thank you. I do have uh, one more question, and it is perhaps a little related to the bridge. I I know for myself, uh, as I work in the field of peacemaking and working through mediation and practices with people, both in groups and individuals, I notice myself starting to ask myself, if I am in the middle of a conflict in my place of living and, and I am not addressing something that's here, then how is it possible for me to extend that out in the world? And it brought me to real, a deep reflection of, of how can I reach out, how can I try and and call to spirit and ask for new ways to respond to people who may be in an emotionally heightened state if uh you're you're being if people are coming at you with anger because of some um some mistake that's been made or that someone actually did something to harm someone i'm i'm curious uh woman stand shining what would you what do you do in your place, in your practice, and through your wisdom knowledge to and, and wisdom teachings to address that, the very personal, the very personal work around restorative justice? Hmm. Well, um, of course, first thing, always, I pray. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the first the first ingredient in any endeavor at this point for me. Um, I've also been instructed uh, that whatever comes my way, if I stay close to spirit, if I keep my heart and spirit ears open to the helpers that are sent, if I stay close to that spiritual help, anything that comes my way can be turned to the use of spirit and the work of spirit. And the work of spirit is always love. And the work of spirit is always beauty. And the work of spirit is always harmony. So I think 
I was given that instruction during some pretty deep deep times of duress and when I was under very deep and very personal spirit, uh, well, personal attack. And, um, and that was what came to me. And so at that point, I just have to get into a place of really deep surrender and really um, listen carefully for that instruction and that opportunity. But I think for me at this point, I am starting to have a pretty deep confidence that 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 way is available. It's always available. It's always available. And that I can do my part in, in making that opportunity clear to those around me that we have that opportunity. Um, we were uh, recently uh, part, my daughter and I went to the to an Idol No More uh, gathering at the um, state legislature. They call it the Rotunda. It's a very large round building in, New, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so we, we were there and uh, we had decided to bring our round dance into inside the building. We had been doing it outside of the building, and we thought my daughter suggested that maybe we go inside of the building. <laughs> and so that created a lot more tension and other possibilities. There was a great deal of uh, security and state police and et cetera there. And as it turned out, there happened to be a meeting of, uh, I guess, different people come and they meet in the central area of that building. And um, so depending on what's meeting in the legislature. Well, it turned out that at the moment we chose to go inside the building, um, which we were told that we could go in. We could not bring our drums or our signs, and we agreed to that. And so we came in, and it turned out that there was a meeting of the Tea Party going on right in the middle of the legislature building. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we all walked in, and we kind of, like, we... we I, I laugh. I say the the Indians were literally surrounding the middle section of the building, <laughs> all the way around the perimeter of this round room, and this tea party meeting was going on right in the middle. And um, I thought about it, and I thought uh, that I really wanted it to be peaceful. So I went up to the person who was speaking, and uh, and I interrupted him, and I kind of whispered in his ear, and I said, you know. This is an idle no more gathering. I don't know if you know about us, but we're really going to need to um, do what we came here to do. So if it's possible for you to give us two minutes, we'll do what we need to do, and then we'll be done, and we're going to leave. And this man, <laughs> he was pretty startled and pretty worried about me. He was backed off a couple feet when I went up, when I approached him, but uh, he did let me ask him this question. He said, well, I'm not really in charge here. This man over here is. So I went and talked to him about it, and uh, we kind of came to an agreement. But um, it was uh, it was a pretty profound thing um, because I didn't, like I said, I didn't realize who they who who was meeting there when we first walked in. Um, but we were able to come to an agreement, and in the meantime, we were also speaking because we lost our element of surprise. We uh, were also having to negotiate with the head of security, who was also negotiating with the state police. And um, all in all, we we ended up being able to make our walk around the rotunda on the inside and to sing a prayer song and to walk out. 
without um, without conflict. Um, and I really felt like again that principle of whatever we are, whatever is placed before us, if we can stay close to that spiritual health and spiritual um, purpose, then there will always be a way. Hmm. Well, that is such a beautiful way to close out this evening with you, Woman Stands Shining. And I just want to thank you and my wonderful co-host, Joyce, and all of you with us tonight for being here in this Council Restorative Justice on the Rise and to encourage you to please participate in the free archives not only of this month and the honoring of indigenous perspectives in restorative justice, but the full two seasons that we've now been doing this. And since this is a free series, we welcome, of course, your donations to support it continuing to be free at peacealliance.org. I also would like to note that our uh, telecouncil with Sequoia Trueblood, I will be announcing as soon as I can the rescheduled date from last week. So keep your ears to the ground on that one. And, of course, go to dopeace.us for the schedule upcoming. Um, we'll be talking with people from the New York Peace Institute in February, as well as Sequoia Trueblood, and, uh, and a very powerful conversation upcoming with a woman who lost her son to murder who travels around the United States speaking on behalf of healing and restorative justice. And so again, without any further ado, the sacred closing of tonight's conversation with great thanks to you, Woman Stand Shining. And if, if, if we might, just a few more words um, briefly in closing from you of anything you might be moved to share, and then we'll go on out into our evenings. Thank you again. Um, the way that we close things um, for my people is we say, we remember that it is a fact there is beauty before us and beauty behind us and beauty below us and beauty above us and beauty all the way around us. We were born into beauty as beauty for a joyful life. And that's the truth. I want to thank you, Molly, and I thank you, Joyce, for having me on this council. My honor. Mm. And thank you all, again, on behalf of the Peace Alliance. Have a beautiful evening, everyone, filled with beauty. Good night. Mm. Good night. Blessings to you.